Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And my uh, podcast can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I also have a blog that I've been writing in for oh, over three years now. I started researching on it about four years ago. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D. UX.com. All right. Today is Sunday, March 13th, 2022, and it is Selection Sunday, the official beginning of the March Madness season. It began unofficially last week with Champ Week, ESPN's lead-in to March Madness, and then seamlessly flows into the, uh, the big tournament. And in this episode, I want to talk about a broad range of issues that have just kind of popped up around the uh, beginning of the March Madness season. And this is going to be a current events update. I did an episode like this, gosh, it was episode 24. I can't remember exactly when it was. I think it may have been around April of 2021. But that episode actually got a lot of attention. But I, I talked about a few things that were happening at about the same time, and some of them were interconnected. I think the same thing is happening right now. And in my very first episode in this podcast, but probably haven't focused on it enough, when you are looking at what's happening in big-time college sports. You can't look at any single issue or event in isolation. You have to look at what's happening at or about the same time or what has happened on the same issue, the same subject matter over, over recent history. And there will be connections. And it's in the connections that you really begin to understand how this business operates. And that's how I view it. And I'm going to look at some of the things that have happened really, or that have become news stories and newsworthy and have been discussed over the last month or so with an emphasis just on the last week. And some really interesting stuff has happened and it ties into some of the broad themes of this podcast. And in that first episode, I, I talked about this kind of holistic analysis of the things that are happening, but all that runs through a central premise. And that is that everything that we know about college sports comes from people who have a direct and substantial financial stake in it. And uh, in that last episode, I talked about the 1929 Carnegie Report and Henry Pritchett's preface to that, in which he talked about this relationship between the institutional interests in uh, big-time college sports and higher education more broadly through the lens of publicity. And it's one of the things that, that universities crave. Universities want uh, publicity, power, prestige, loyalty, and social currency. And all of that ultimately leads to money, money, and more money. And that's pretty much how Henry Pritchett put it in the Carnegie Report. And he talked about the publicity part of that and how important that was and how there is this symbiotic relationship between the sports media and the institutional interests. The publicity component of what universities crave is satisfied most easily, most consistently, and most efficiently through big-time college sports. There's simply no other vehicle that the big-time universities have in their 
marketing and branding toolkit that is as effective as big-time college sports, which is a primary reason why they are in this game. And uh, that basic premise that Pritchett identified in 1929 has evolved over the last almost 100 years now into an extraordinarily sophisticated sports entertainment industry where the participants are partners. They are not independent actors acting according to their own set of values. The only value here is money and branding. And the market partners in big amateurism, they need each other. And I want to make an important uh, distinction between the world that existed in 1929 and what exists today. Because back then, the big-time college sports marketplace didn't have essentially a partnership interest in the big media. So you had newspapers and magazines and other forms of sports media, the burgeoning sports media market, selling advertising that was based on an appeal to uh, Americans' interest in college sports. But that uh, was pretty indirect. But today, the relationship between the university interests, the institutional interests on the university side, and then the sports media is much, much different because they have direct contractual relationships through these mega contracts. Say, for example, that big time football has with ESPN and that the conferences have and that some individual schools have. And when the SEC or the CFP does a multi-billion dollar media broadcast deal with ESPN, ESPN becomes the producer and financial beneficiary of that entertainment. And at the same time, it is the media that's covering it. And that is just a profound built-in conflict of interest. But what it guarantees the institutional interest, these universities, is that they will get 24-7 fawning coverage, not of the individual athlete, that's an important component of it, but of the institution itself. And that is gold in the marketing and branding world of higher education in the 21st century. And the Power Five have a monopoly on that marketing and branding and that cozy relationship between the producers of sports entertainment and the media that covers it. And they are indistinguishable now. I think the incestuous relationship between the institutional interest, the, the Power Five universities primarily, and then these producers like ESPN that also double as sports media, and then the other more traditional sports media outlets creates two really unhealthy dynamics in a country that's built on principles of free speech and using those freedoms to seek truth and to hold institutions accountable. And one of those negative byproducts is that because everybody in this marketplace is so self-interested and operating from substantial conflicts of interest, the acceptable range of debate is still very narrow and framed in large measure by the very in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that are supposed to be the watchdogs, that are supposed to be blowing the whistle on what's happening in college sports. And even in some of the criticisms that you read about, when you look carefully at how these articles are constructed and how they play into the, the broader framing in this conflicted sports media, 
you see that they really are more deferential to institutional interests that might, than might appear from a first read. I'm going to use a couple of recent examples in the name, image, and likeness context in this episode to illustrate that. And then the other thing that is a byproduct of this incestuous relationship between the universities and the institutional interest on the one hand and then the sports entertainment industrial complex and media on the other is that that narrow band of discussion creates a false sense of consensus that everybody in the business model has to see this in a certain way within these certain narrow parameters and everybody agrees that's the appropriate way to look at college sports there is very little true independent criticism of the big-time college sports marketplace because the people who should be offering that criticism are benefiting from a rigged status quo, and they are not going to bite the hand that feeds them. In the national sports media, that's particularly acute. And you have these people, a small handful of people, really, when you look at the universe of people writing about college sports and the articles that make it into the first page of a search engine, you get the same news outlets, you get the same writers, and it is a very small group, and they have enormous influence. And I think untangling this incestuous relationship between the sports media and even the mainstream media and the institutional interest in college sports is really important. And what I, I'm going to talk about this in other episodes, but when you look at the primary news outlets that have credibility, that have uh, market share, that have have connections into the big-time college sports marketplace and also have the ability to get their news at the front of the line on search engines. You're looking at ESPN, CBS, Sports Illustrated, Sportico, The Athletic, USA Today, The Associated Press, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Chronicle of Higher Education even. I, I look at all of those sources and I've been reading and studying and researching these issues now for four years. And within that array of media outlets, you have a pretty small group of writers who dominate the messaging, who are substantially in control of narrative making and to varying degrees, land in substantially the same place as the market participants and the institutional stakeholders. And they reinforce the interests of the institutional stakeholders. And for purely financial reasons, they wind up landing on a values level in the same place as the consumers who purchase their products. So what I want to do is take some of these news stories and talk about them a little bit and what they say about the business of big-time college sports, the values of big-time college sports, and the future of college sports. And uh, these news stories fall into several categories. One is name, image, and likeness. The other is divisional realignment and CFP expansion. Those are tied together. Then we have the March Madness deluge. We have the college basketball scandal resurrecting itself through a notice of allegations to LSU. And then some interesting stories on sports betting have come into the news cycle that I want to talk a little bit about. And I'm going to start with these two basketball-related items. And uh, there was an article that was published on March 9th in Sportico by a guy named Anthony Krupe. And it's an interesting article, but it's titled, March Madness Ads Sell Out 
as hype hoops royalty return to the arena and i want to dedicate this article to all the fundamentally fraudulent narratives that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been painting around name image and likeness compensation and employee status and pay for play and the transfer rules and then covid you know when covid came onto the scene in 20 20, you had all these same interests saying, oh my God, the sky's falling. We'll never recover from this. And sure enough, they not only recovered, they're doing even better than before. And the games go on. The games go on. So what this article proves in a nutshell is that despite all of the fear mongering and all of these gloom and doom portrayals, depending on the next thing, the big thing that was going to change the relationship between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the athletes, that was going to be the thing that was going to be the death of college sports. So in this article, the the uh, author points out that the advertising revenue for this tournament, and this is, I think they call this the first quote unquote regular tournament since 2019. So we had these two strange years. We didn't have a tournament at all in 2020. Then we had what I think was just a, an embarrassment of a tournament in 2021. And it just didn't have the rhythm of the March Madness that we've come to expect. And despite uh, legitimate COVID concerns, last year. The NCAA decided that they were going to play this tournament come hell or high water, even if all but two teams COVID tested out of eligibility. <laughs> it was just an embarrassment to the game of basketball. But you have the same corporate champions and corporate partners who drive this billion dollar a year contract between the NCAA and CBS Turner, and they are coming back in full force. And the advertising slots have sold out. The demand for advertising slots for this tournament is so intense that there's simply nothing left. And the bidding went up and up and up. They talked to some experts in this space, and they were talking about the value of advertising slots. And from the standpoint of the purchaser of these media rights, that's what matters. So the NCAA gets its billion dollars from CBS Turner, and CBS Turner turn around, and they sell advertising, and that's how they make their money. And for a 30-second unit in the quote-unquote earlier rounds, um, not quite sure what they mean by that. But that 30-second slot was going for about uh, $200,000, 30 seconds, okay? And then when you get into the later elimination rounds, I'm assuming this would be like Elite 8 forward, could be Sweet 16 forward, and then into the championship game, that escalates up to almost $2 million in the championship game, $2 million for a 30-second slot. You don't have to be a math major to understand that that's a very big number. And here's how the author of this article put it. He says, in other words, the CBS and Turner cable networks are about to make a killing in New Orleans. And then the author goes on to talk about how important it is to have the true blue bloods in college basketball back in shape and back on the, the scene. Because that wasn't really the case last year. And you had some of the best brands in college basketball not even making the tournament. You didn't have the, this, the heavy hitters, the really heavy hitters in college basketball coming in in a position of strength into the postseason. So he talks about that and he says, you've got Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, Gonzaga, Arizona, UCLA, you have geographical balance. Then this guy throws in 
a reference to the importance of Coach K's market value. And he says, a long run by Duke before five-time champ Mike Krzyzewski hangs it up for good should also go a long way toward inflating the TV numbers. And I, I talked about the influence of Coach K at the branding level, at the market value level in my last uh, couple of episodes. And this is just proof of that. And it's also an acknowledgement that, that I talked about in my early blogging, that when you look at the true value in the March Madness tournament and the Division I men's basketball product, it is dominated by Power Five schools, Power Five coaches, Power Five players. That is the branding power. That is the market power. And yeah, we like to see a Cinderella upset every now and then, and that adds some flavor to the tournament. But when push comes to shove, advertisers want to see Duke and Kentucky or Duke and Kansas or Kansas and Arizona or UCLA and Gonzaga now. Gonzaga has moved up into that elite echelon. I don't think that they want to see two 12-seeded teams meeting for the national championship. Yeah, it'd be novel, but uh, it doesn't have the drawing power power and the market power and the brand power of those elite blue blood basketball schools. And all this optimism occurs in what is an unusual year for the Final Four because typically CBS would carry that and CBS has broader coverage than Turner does. But this year, Turner gets the Final Four. So their footprint, their cable footprint is smaller than CBS is, substantially smaller. So we don't know what total viewership is going to look like, but apparently that hasn't impacted the value of the advertising for that game. And then they go on to say again that even though we have this smaller footprint, if Duke, for example, makes it to the final four and Coach K's leading his Duke team into the national championship game, that could make up for the differences in the footprint. I mean, what does that say? What does that tell you? It tells you that these brands have enormous value. And then the article closes out with a quote from a Turner Sports executive. And he says, when you think about the amount of days in, in the tournament, and it's not like we're on the air every day of the three weeks, that's a lot of money. And we gobble it up in a short window. And then he goes on to say this, we're in great shape. The sports market is booming and booming is put in italics. That's the last word of the article. Yes, indeed. The sports market is booming despite nil, despite Austin, despite the regulatory malaise in the NCAA and the Power Five, despite the transfer market, despite the fact that athletes might actually be recognized as statutory employees under federal law. In the face of all of the gloom and doom scenarios, each one of which the NCAA, Power Five, and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries said would bring college sports to a fatal collapse, we're in great shape. The sports market is booming and the games go on. The games go on. And then the second basketball-related news item I want to talk a little bit about was news on March 8th of 2022 that LSU basketball coach Will Wade was fired by LSU after LSU received a notice of allegations tied to the men's basketball scandal. And that's a scandal that I talked so much about that really started in earnest in 2015-16 when the FBI started a sting operation targeted to big-time men's 
basketball, and that resulted in multiple indictments out of the Southern District of New York that came down in uh, 2017, and then these cases were tried in 2018. I talked at length about the basketball-related scandal, and I did, gosh, I don't know, 12 or so episodes that related directly to it, and episodes 54 to 64. 54 was titled The United States versus Gatto, the victim university absurdity, where I talked about the prosecution's theory of the case. And that went through a, a discussion of the NCAA's case against North Carolina State and state's involvement in the criminal prosecutions. And then I wrapped it up with episode 81. I can't remember when that was. That was just a couple of months ago. Titled Requiem for a College Basketball Scandal. When that Gatto case died at the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court, the case was appealed. The coaches that were involved and these shoe company people were convicted under wire fraud statutes. And and all the assistant coaches were African-American. They were the high-hazard, dispensable market participants in this corrupt underbelly of big-time basketball talent acquisition that runs through the shoe company interests. I've talked all about that. But one of the themes that, that I uh, talked about throughout that entire saga, and I think it's a really important one, is that the federal government's uh, curiosity and the in-system stakeholder beneficiary's curiosity about who was really responsible for this mess in college basketball recruiting and the talent acquisition market stopped with the head coaches. There was a very subtle but very strong line that was drawn between the African-American assistant coaches and the head coaches who benefited from the risks that the African-American coaches took in the recruiting game. The black coaches were dispensable. They were thrown under the bus. They were subject to decades in prison under these ridiculous theories that the prosecution came up with and that the federal judges allowed to go forward. And that was that the universities themselves were the victims of these transactions. And this cloak and dagger, behind the scenes, shadowy recruiting market and all the subterfuge that existed in, the, in that market that was captured on the wiretapped calls was not designed to hide these transactions from the federal government because these assistant coaches didn't think they were violating federal law. They were operating underground to avoid detection by the NCAA and the infractions and enforcement Stasi. So the absurdity of, of these prosecutions is, is difficult to put into words. And I, I, that's why I went into such detail in those 12 episodes. You know, if you're interested in looking at an example of how uh, privilege protection rackets work in the United States of America, my discussion of this NC State case, I think, is a good illustration of that. But there are a couple of things specific to this LSU case that I think are important to point out. First of all, this victim university, capital V, capital U theory, legal theory, made the universities out to be victims because the court determined, and there was a pretty detailed opinion in this Gatto case. There were like three or four different criminal prosecutions with different judges, but Gatto really fleshed out this victim university theory, which was adopted by all of these judges. And that is that because these transactions violated NCAA amateurism-based rules, the universities were victims because they committed scholarship money to athletes who were actually ineligible and then also exposed themselves to an 
enhanced risk of being found guilty of violating NCAA rules. That was deemed to be sufficient potential harm to the universities to justify federal wire fraud charges and decades of potential jail time. But not a single whitehead coach in all these universities that were implicated, high-profile universities, LSU, Kansas, Arizona, NC State, Louisville, and more. All these high-profile universities had uh, white head coaches. And there was undeniable, irrefutable evidence from some of these wiretaps that these coaches either knew or should have known. And with respect to Will Wade, the LSU coach, he essentially admits on some of those wiretaps that he is actively engaged in paying athletes to attend LSU. The head coach, not the black assistant coach, the white head coach. But that line between the head coaches and the assistant coaches was inviolate in the criminal prosecutions. So now you finally have a white head coach being held to account for the same conduct that resulted in prosecutions for their black assistants, but he's only getting fired. He's not getting prosecuted. And under the prosecution's theory of the case, he should have been prosecuted. And they had ironclad evidence that he was involved at that level that Will Wade was involved at that level, and they didn't prosecute him. Why? And while black assistant coaches at the schools that were implicated in this quote-unquote scandal were being prosecuted, those white head coaches were making millions and millions and millions of dollars off the talent that those black assistant coaches brought in. It is just uh, unconscionable. So I'm going to pay attention to that. I, I haven't read the actual notice of allegations. And something that's important here, and this relates to this article I'm going to quote from, this is an ESPN article on March 8th announcing the notice of allegations. It's written by a guy named Pete Thamel, who writes for ESPN, and it incorporates some patently false narratives that the NCAA and that Greg Sankey and that the movers and shakers behind this constitutional makeover and the transformation committee want in place as they do a hostile takeover of infractions and enforcement with respect to these big time cases. But Sankey has been hostile to this whole independent accountability resolution process. I've talked quite a bit about that and I'm not going to go back through it. You can listen to those discussions about the NC State case. I go through in detail how those infractions entities came into being through the Commission on College Basketball recommendations, what happened to them, and how they have been essentially neutered. But you had the old infractions and enforcement process that's been in place since the 1950s under Walter Byers, and it is corrupt in every way, top to bottom left to right. And this independent accountability process for high stakes cases was recommended by the Commission on College Basketball as a counterweight to the corruption that existed in the old process. But as the new process was being utilized in these basketball-related cases, the very cases that the, the independent accountability resolution process was created to adjudicate, you had in-system stakeholder beneficiaries at the highest level, namely Greg Sankey, publicly saying that the independent accountability resolution process was bad news because it was taking too long and redoing the work that had already been done by the in-house corrupt infractions and enforcement staff. That argument never passed the blush test because the evidence suggests that independent process is at least as efficient as the old infractions and enforcement 
process. You had old cases in infractions and enforcement. I talked about the Baylor case. That decision came out in August of 2021, and it was an embarrassment because it, it couldn't hold Baylor responsible for all the bad stuff that happened there because NCAA doesn't bother to legislate in those areas. But the conduct at issue in Baylor goes back to 2010, 2011, and the NCAA got involved in 2016. You don't get a decision until 2021. So the evidence is a decade stale in the Baylor case, and it took half a decade to adjudicate the thing through the old process that I guess uh, Sankey would say is comparatively efficient. But when you look at these cases that were referred to the independent accountability resolution process. The first one wasn't referred until May of 2020. And remember, the infrastructure for that process, that independent process, wasn't in place until August of 2019. So you had the NC State case that was referred in May of 2020. You had the Kansas case referred in July of 2020. This LSU case was referred in September of 2020. Then you had, I think it was um, Arizona in December of 2020, and then Louisville in February of 2020. 21. And with those basic background facts, let me go through how this ESPN writer talks about that process. And they talk about that LSU has received a notice of allegations and not serious stuff. And it was so serious on its face that all of a sudden LSU, after standing be- behind Will Wade, since this evidence came out in the, at the trial in 2018, they stood behind him. They, he was initially suspended and then he was reinstated. But his job was never really in jeopardy, and he was making millions and millions of dollars. So after four years of standing behind Will Wade, they get this notice of allegations that is based in large part on the very audio recording that's been in the public record for years. And all of a sudden now they have to fire Will Wade. And so they talk about that process and go back through some of the discussion about the history of the Will Wade case. And then it's with so many things that are inconvenient narratives for the business of big time college sports, history has a way of just washing away the important details. This is how uh, Thamel, this ESPN writer, talks about the history of this scandal. He, he says, the basketball portion of this case, there were some football allegations as well, ties back to the federal basketball investigation, which became public in September of 2017. The case has taken so long in part because it got directed to the independent accountability resolution process, which was invented to help with complex cases. But in reality, it has managed to further slow down an adjudication process that for decades had been criticized as too slow. So what do you take away from that? A couple of important things. One, that the NCAA and this independent accountability resolution process has been sitting on this since September of 2017. But yet the Commission on College Basketball didn't come into existence until the following month. September is when the indictments were announced. Then the CCB does its work, makes recommendations for this new process because the old process is corrupt. And the IARP is phased in and doesn't become fully operational until August of 2019. To read this, you would think that this new process has just been dilly-dallying and has been dragging this thing out. But in fact, the very infrastructure that was necessary to utilize this process didn't exist for almost two years later. And 
Thamel says, yeah, that this process was invented to help with complex cases, but it doesn't say why it was invented to help with complex cases. The IARP was recommended by the Commission on College Basketball because the old infractions and enforcement process was so corrupt and so riddled with conflicts of interest that it wasn't trustworthy. It wasn't credible. And Greg Sankey knows that. When he was making all this flap about how inefficient the IARP was and how it was taking too long and how this complex case unit was sticking its nose into the stuff it shouldn't be sticking its nose into, he was building a case that he then used when he became the head of this transformation committee. And they were going to neuter the IARP. That was something that they had talked about. And then this law, the NCAA Accountability Act that was proposed in November of 2021, was going to put the infractions and enforcement process under the supervision of the Department of Justice. So <laughs> you had all these moving parts that I think are driven in large part by Sankey, his advocacy, and then his machinations behind the scene to get rid of this IARP. And ESPN has bought that lock, stock, and barrel, and it is a false narrative if the criticism's based on the inefficiency and the delay in this process. That is simply not true. But the ESPN has just fallen right in with Sankey's talking points. And on that point, I just want to make two other observations. In my NC State episodes, I talked about how all these basketball cases were managed. And Carol Cartwright, who is a longtime NCAA insider and was also at the same time serving on the Knight Commission, which I thought was a conflict of interest. But she was responsible for managing all of these cases, deciding which ones were referred to the IARP, which ones would be run through the old process. And that decision-making lacked consistency. But she was very clear in her statements and her communications with the schools that were implicated that at the government's request, while these federal prosecutions were going on in New York in 2018 and through 2019, that the NCAA was going to stand down on any regulatory action. So the reason that nothing happened in 2017 on the NCAA side is because the federal government didn't want the NCAA mucking things up. And then it wasn't until after the NCAA tried to intervene in that criminal case, the Gatto case, to try to get the dirt that the prosecution said wasn't fit to be admitted into evidence. After the denial of their motion to intervene, only then did the NCAA ramp up their infractions and enforcement apparatus. And then just another thing I want to point out on the absurdity of this justification for criticizing this independent accountability resolution process. And I'm not in favor of it or the existing NCAA infractions and enforcement process. And apparently neither is Greg Sankey now because the Power Five is going to have absolute control over that. And I've talked about that at some length as well. But there were some cases that were spawned by this broader basketball scandal that did not go through this IARP. We're not referred to that independent process. And one of them was the Auburn case. I just want to point out that the Auburn case, and I'm going to compare it with the NC State case, which did run through the IARP. It was the first case that was fully adjudicated through this independent process that has been getting so much criticism. But these two cases arose from the same core of facts in that Southern District of New York basketball scandal and the cases that were ultimately prosecuted. And an Auburn assistant coach, Chuck Person, who I talked so much about in, in a couple of my episodes, he was really at the center of the Auburn case. And then 
you had the NC State case and these payments that were allegedly made to Dennis Smith Jr. and his family. So Auburn goes to the old system and NC State goes to the new system. The opinions, the decisions, the final decisions in those two cases were announced within 10 days of each other. So this Auburn case, the old system, it began on the same timeline as the rest of the basketball-related cases, but went through the old system, and it went through the infractions and enforcement process, the, the enforcement staff at the national office, the notice of allegations, then the response, then the hearing, and then the opinion. The IARP operates in a much similar way, but both processes took about the exact same time. And when you look at the true timeline of how these basketball cases moved from when the charges were announced in September of 2017 to the NCAA's first true enforcement involvement really in 2019, you see that both moved through on the exact same track. And the NCAA case was the very first case to be run through and the only case thus far in the IARP in which we have a decision. These other cases came later. The LSU case came months later. So what's your evidence? What's your evidence, Greg Sankey? What's your evidence, ESPN writer, that this IARP process is just pulling down the system? It's bad news and we got to get rid of it. It doesn't make any sense. But the point of, of that is that it shows you how quickly and easily and seamlessly and invisibly patently false narratives become unchallengeable truths in this incestuous world of big-time college sports and sports media. So now I want to turn to a couple of stories and a release from the NCAA propaganda website that relate to name, image, and likeness that also illustrate some of these broader themes. And I'm going to do standalone episodes on where things stand on name, image, and likeness because that is going to be an important issue in terms of what the Transformation Committee does, how it views the state of amateurism in 2022 and how that informs what the NCAA and the Power Five do in their engagement in Congress, in federal courts, and also through administrative agency action. And a lot of that relates to this employee-no-employee -employee debate. And I want to talk about two articles and then a statement from the NCAA. And these aren't in chronological order necessarily, but they all go to the same issue. So there was a, an article on March 2nd, 2022 from Sportico, and it's titled, Schools Hear Crickets from NCAA Amid Specter of Nil pay lawsuits. And then there's a similar uh, article, similarly themed article from The Athletic that stated March 10th, 2022. And the title is Schools Question Whether the NCAA Can Enforce Pay-for-Play Rules on Nil. Is there going to be accountability? And these relate to two broad themes. Both, I believe, indirectly support in-system stakeholder beneficiary interests. One is that this null marketplace is out of control. We're in the Wild West. It's just chaos and we need to do something. There needs to be something done to stabilize this name, image, and likeness market. And that is driven by all these sensationalized articles about the value of nil. And I'm going to get to, to those in a minute. Right now, I'm talking about really what the state of the NCAA's regulatory authority is on name, image, and likeness and the excuses that have been made for its inaction. And both of these articles really talk about how compliance officials at all the institutions, they're just scared to death of what might might happen next. They're afraid of having an email discovered that might suggest that they've engaged in anti-competitive collusion and violation of antitrust laws. And the way that these articles talk about the issues is really interesting to me because there are some, I think, false assumptions 
built into this. And then both of them miss what I think is the most important issue, and that is the absolute absence of leadership in the voluntary regulation of college sports. We are sitting in a power vacuum right now of historic proportions. And nobody's talking honestly about that. And I think in large part, that's because all these media interests to one degree or another have the same ultimate goal as now the Power Five has. The Power Five are in ostensible control of the voluntary governance of college sports through this transformation committee and on the backside of this constitutional makeover. This is a Power Five show and it's a Power Five football show. But these interests that are covering the Power Five and the Power Five football show, and to a lesser extent, the basketball interest, they're making money from those markets. They are in the same ecosystem, even though it appears that some of this uh, commentary is actually criticism, but it's very muted criticism, which in my judgment keeps it within these narrow parameters of how you discuss the dysfunction in the college sports marketplace and the college sports regulatory marketplace in particular right now. So, well, the NCAA has this interim policy, and while it doesn't have many specifics, it does include no pay for play and no inducements. That's the bread and butter of the entire amateur amateurism-based business model. So the narratives are that these compliance people at the institutional level just don't know what to do. They are paralyzed by indecision. And when they reach out for help from the NCAA, it's met with either unhelpful information or with silence. So both of these articles give examples of reach outs from compliance officers at some of these big-time Division I schools, and they just get nothing in response. And in both articles, they talk about the fear of litigation. It's all about the fear of litigation and this Austin case. Wow, this Austin case. And then the absence of voluntary rulemaking that would have existed but for Austin. That's an implication driving a lot of this fear. And I want to talk about those two issues because I think they're overstated. And I think the real problem here is that we don't know who the hell's in charge. We don't know who's accountable. And until the transformation committee tells us what the hell's going on in the voluntary regulation of college sports, we're not going to know. And apparently all these sports media journalists aren't asking those questions. If they are, they're not reporting on them. But I want to talk a little bit about this Austin-induced fear. I'm going to be talking in more detail here in a little bit on the state of amateurism in 2022, post-Austin, post-nil, post-transfer market. And this notion that Austin in and of itself has crippled decision-making at the NCAA and at the institutional level it is a cop-out. I think, for a, a number of reasons. First of all, the actual Austin decision does not disturb in any way the NCAA's use of amateurism or compensation limits to achieve its institutional goals and to protect its values. All Austin said was that the NCAA, if it engages in a practice that is anti-competitive on its face, has to offer a pro-competitive justification through the full rule of reason analysis and then prove to a court that its compensation limit is reasonable. 
That's the long and short of the Austin case. The Austin case did not take down amateurism. It did not end amateurism. And the court was very clear to say that its ruling was limited to the four corners of the injunction. And it was presented in the context of the athletes abandoning their claim that amateurism it itself should be declared a facial violation of federal antitrust laws. So on the backside of Austin, all that the NCAA has to do in any case, just like the one it's litigating out in, the, in uh, California now in-house, is to prove that its compensation limits or its restrictions on athlete freedoms and economic liberties is defensible under a full rule of reason analysis. And I've said this in my discussions about the Austin case, and because of the way that the athletes framed the issues on appeal and the fact that they abandoned the central purpose of their initial lawsuit, which was to be a complete takedown of amateurism itself, the Supreme Court had the luxury of putting some pressure on the NCAA through its rhetoric and the unanimity in that decision without having to actually deal with the central question that's on the table right now, and that is, will amateurism itself in a proper case be completely taken down by the federal courts. We don't know that. And I believe that if the athletes had actually preserved that issue on appeal and had cross-appealed in the United States Supreme Court, we don't have a unanimous decision striking down amateurism itself. In fact, I don't know if we have a majority decision striking down amateurism itself. So what Brett Kavanaugh talked about in his concurring opinion wasn't put to the test. We don't know. And even he said that there are substantial problems with just taking down amateurism itself and their important considerations, all that stuff. So I find the fact that the NCAA and the Power Five and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are operating as if the NCAA had struck down amateurism itself to be really interesting. And that tells me not that they think that Austin precludes enforcement of uh, pay-for-play or recruiting inducements, but they're afraid that they can't defend those compensation limits in litigation. And uh, this house case out in California isn't really well evolved, and I'm paying attention to that. And we'll get a better sense of how the NCAA is responding to that challenge. But when it comes to, say, the inducement issue, the recruiting inducement issue, that really hasn't been front and center as a standalone issue in, in antitrust litigation. I think that it may be in this House case, given the evolution of this nil market and all the, the gloom and doom and the fear that these schools are using these deals really to mask outright inducements and, and pay for play. It's a different type of pay for play. It is a way to secure an advantage in the recruiting market. And that may have a different justification. And, and again, you also in-house have perhaps a, a different test being applied in defining the market. Isn't going to be defined by con perceived consumer interests and consumer demand and consumer choice? Or is it going to be framed in terms of the market between the laborers and the employers? And is it a labor-facing market or a consumer-facing market? And it looks like they may be moving to a labor-facing market. There's some new issues here, some new wrinkles that could change change the rule of reason analysis and the interests that are presented in that analysis through the NCAA Power 5's pro-competitive justifications. But what creeps into this framing of the issues is this longstanding argument that the NCAA and Power 5 have made about 
besieging and frivolous litigation, endless litigation. If we draw a line in the sand here, then we're going to get sued and we don't want to get sued. We're already getting sued. You're already defending a lawsuit in California, and you've defended lawsuits for the last 15 years in the athlete's rights context, challenging your compensation limits. You're already getting sued. So the real question is, where are your principles? You're a values-based organization, a principles-based organization. You've been selling those values to the highest bidder since the 1950s. Now that they're under challenge, you're hiding under your desk, pointing the finger at all these bad actors who are filing besieging, frivolous, and endless litigation. That's the narrative that I hear when I read articles like this, and it reinforces a fundamentally false narrative. If you believe, whether you're the NCAA or the Power Five or an individual conference or an individual school, that nil activity has crossed the line from legitimate deals with third parties who have an arm's length relationship with the athletes into disguised outright recruiting inducements or pay for play, then stand up and say so and draw your line in the sand and then defend it on a values-based level, on a principles-based level. Hiding under your desk, refusing comment, refusing to state your principles and how you're going to stand behind them is chicken shit. It is absolute chicken shit. And there's no legitimate justification for it. And then the other narrative that, that comes from that is that Austin is the reason that we don't have any voluntary rules changes on nil. And in this article, Arbach quotes an attorney who's talking about these guardrails and the restrictions that were initially going to be placed around nil and how they were not really fleshed out in this interim policy. And they say, let's see, they, meaning the NCAA, are going to be very gun-shy about putting any more restrictions in place around nil. They had more detailed nil rules drafted. They've been talking about them for a long time. Then Austin comes out, and they just really abandoned those and put in place what they have now, which are very bare bones. That could not be further from the truth. The NCAA's cessation of voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness, which it had been promising for years through this dishonest campaign in the Senate and through the work of the federal and state legislation working group and, and the garbage it put out in October of 2019, that was just a smokescreen. And the NCAA ceased its voluntary rules making on name, image, and likeness in January of 2021 after it lost control of the Senate and didn't have an easy pathway to an NCAA-friendly, Power Five-friendly, Republican-sponsored name, image, and likeness bill. They just dropped out of the market disingenuously through this made-up pressure from the Justice Department and Macon Del Harim that I, I wrote about and have talked a little bit about. And then then they just told the divisions to stand down and all the work that had been done to draft actual changes to NCAA rules on name, image, and likeness disappeared and they have not come back. That was before Austin. Austin wasn't argued until March of 2021. It wasn't decided until June of 2021. And what that tells you, what it told me at least, is that the NCAA had zero intention of changing a single rule on name, image, and likeness because they thought they were going to get federal protections and immunities that would have allowed them to do nothing on name, image, and likeness. And there is nothing stopping the NCAA, or now the Power Five, after this power grab at the regulatory level under the NCAA umbrella, from going forward with more specific name, image, and likeness rules making. Could they get sued? 
Yes. And then they have the opportunity to defend those limitations in a full rule of reason analysis. They just don't get antitrust immunity. That's all. Not a big deal. Just like every other industry in the country, they would have to prove up that restraint. And if they can't, if they're afraid to, because they know it's indefensible, then get rid of it. Get rid of it. And then in that regard, I want to talk briefly about this statement that was released by the NCAA Division I Board of Directors on February 18th, 2022. So this is just a couple of weeks before these articles started coming out. And it's titled, Division I Board of Directors Directs Division I Council to Review Impact of Nil on Student Athletes. And we get the, the sky's falling narrative and there's confusion and there's chaos and we have name, image, and likeness being used as recruiting inducements and outright pay for play. And oh my gosh. So, and this is from, I think the statement was from the chair of the Division One Board of Directors. And he said, we are concerned that some activity in the name, image, and likeness space may not only be violating NCAA recruiting rules, particularly those prohibiting booster involvement, but also may be impacting the student athlete experience negatively in some ways. It's always about the student athlete experience. We want to preserve the positive aspects of the new policy while reviewing whether anything can be done to mitigate the negative ones. That quote uh, I've seen a couple times in some of these articles, but the next part of this is really the most important. The, the press release goes on. The involvement of schools in arranging for deals also was a concern, as well as how to best ensure adequate representation for student athletes as they negotiate contract terms. The board welcomed congressional action toward a national reasonable nil standard that supports college athletes. So what does this mean? All right. And this, I think it dovetails with these articles that came out just a couple of weeks later that reinforced the chaos and the paralysis and the sky is falling. And what are we going to do? Nobody knows what to do. And because of this confusion, we're going to be going right back to Congress for a quote unquote reasonable nil standard, a federal standard. And what does that mean? It means the same thing it meant in 2019 and 2020. And that is we're going to steamroll the name, image, and likeness market, federalize it. And through bills like the Moran bill or the Wicker bill or the Shabbat bill, we're going to have absolute control over the regulation of that market. We meaning the NCAA and the Power Five or the Power Five primarily and the NCAA secondarily. So that's what it means. It means Despite all these things that have changed, we're back to square one and our initial instinct, which was to, rather than changing our business model and voluntarily coming into the 21st century, we're going to get the federal government to bail us out and then we can do whatever the hell we want to. That's where this thing lands. And these narratives that come out of these articles in March, in a very subtle way, reinforce that there are all these uh, intractable problems and paralysis and indecision and confusion and chaos. Well, how do you solve that? How about federal legislation? Back to the same in-system stakeholder beneficiary talking points in different clothing. And then I, I want to talk about something else. It's in the nil context, but it's on a different point. And I've got a couple of articles here that illustrate what I want to talk about. They are moon landing-like articles about some eye-popping name, image, and likeness deals. And this kind of ties into that initial theme of the overstatement and the hyperbole and the gulf between what is presented with exclamation points in headlines and what's really in the details. And that is a hallmark of sports journalism. And again, that's something that the Carnegie Report was talking about in the 
20s. And this issue has been really at the center of the nil discussion. Since the nil marketplace came into existence because of NCAA arrogance and incompetence on July 1st with all these name, image, and likeness laws and then the NCAA's last-minute nil dump through this interim policy. But all we heard about were these multi-million dollar deals, and they were covered with an absolute certitude that these deals were just dominating the marketplace. And and the headlines reinforce that. So I want to talk about two articles, one in particular. This is also from The Athletic, and this was written by Stuart Mandel on March 11th, so just a couple of days ago. And the title of the article is Five-Star Recruit in Class of 2023 Signs Agreement with Collective That Could Pay Him More Than Eight million. And I have a network of people that I communicate with on athletes' rights stuff, and I'll, they'll you know send me stuff. And I had uh, a couple of, actually three of them, send me this very article. You know, the, the headline creates a pretty powerful perception. Eight million dollars. My gosh. And from this, what do you conclude? I think you would conclude that this kind of nil activity is common, that it is representative of the marketplace. And then, so you have this eye-popping headline, and then you have a description about a five-star recruit in the class of 2023. So this kid's in high school. This kid hasn't committed to a specific school, and he's agreed with one of these name, image, and likeness collectives, which is consortium of interests that want to provide nil opportunities, but they aren't directly or identifiably tied to a specific school. So this kid's supposed to get 350000 thousand dollars immediately, then monthly payouts that escalate to more than two million. And then he, in exchange, does public appearances, he does social media promotions, and then other activities. And they talk about how this contract is structured, and they they actually got a copy of it from the lawyer who drafted it. And they talk about some of the elements of the contract. And there are a few things I want to talk about here that aren't discussed in the article that I think are important. And there's some good things about the contract, and there's some bad things about the way it was initially structured. And it, it talks about that. But I want to focus on how that headline fits into the reality of the actual nil market, which based on statements from people in this article, is almost impossible to quantify with any certainty because there is no reporting, no mandated reporting of these nil deals. We don't have a true picture of what the nil marketplace looks like. So we get these anecdotal snapshots on a contract by contract basis. And the people who are in this space, the people representing these athletes have a clear incentive to sensationalize what they're doing for their clients so they can get more clients. You know, that's business promotion 101. But they talked to a guy who's not directly involved in this nil deal, but he says, look, there's a, a lot of money out there and, and wants people to know that there's some eye-popping nil deals out there. But the way he talks about it, it really undermines the power of that headline. He says, while $2 million a year is wild, and he's talking about this nil deal that they say is worth $8 million. He, he says $200,000 isn't unusual, but most people are thinking that these athletes are getting $20,000. So that's his understanding of how the public perceives this nil market. No, as a result of these kinds of articles, people think that these athletes are making a hell of a lot more than $20,000. And then they talk to the actual lawyer who uh, drafted the contract and negotiated it with this collective. And he says they're very careful in these 
contracts to not put anything in there that could be construed as an inducement for the athlete to enroll at a particular school. They don't mention a specific university. And the the grounds for termination go to a violation of confidentiality, which is interesting because there are confidentiality clauses in a lot of these deals. And so we don't see the, the contracts. This guy showed this one. And then there can also be terminated if the athlete engages in uh, bad actor conduct and integrity clause. And then, and then this attorney and then another one that they interview talk about some of the tactics that these collectives, that the institutions are using to try to lock in these athletes through exclusivity deals. And that's not a good word if you're representing the athlete's interests. And then there were some provisions that uh, have essentially liquidated damages clauses where at the election of the institutions, they could ask for some of this money back. And but that's bad news. And, and they're one-sided contracts. And this attorney who wasn't involved in the drafting of this contract, but who they quote, compares that to these one-sided contracts in the music inter- industry, which is an interesting analogy that I think I'm going to explore. The way he says it is that the word exclusive is the most expensive word for any athlete in any marketing agreement. And that student-athletes should own and maintain their nil rights. And then this article does exactly what the earlier articles did, and it defaults to this statement from the NCAA on how the the line between a legitimate nil deal and outright pay-for-play has been compromised, and we need to do something, do something. And they pull that quote from the press release that talks about how bad this is, but they don't pull the quotes from the NCOA statement I mentioned earlier saying that the the answer is federal nil legislation that would shut down the name, image, and likeness market. And then the, the author here invokes Austin that the NCAA doesn't want any part of trying to enact restrictions, voluntary rules restrictions on athletes' nil compensation because of the Supreme Court's decision in the Austin antitrust case. And so he, the suggestion there is that people involved in putting these contracts together are contracting through self-serving language around those issues. But then at the very end of the this article, we finally get to the truth that is somewhat at odds with the headline that suggests that $8 million nil deals are going to be uh, commonplace. And, and we're talking millions here, not hundreds, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions. So they talked to this guy who's, I think, been in this space from the very beginning, and he's a, a go-to quote guy. This guy named Blake Lawrence from Open Source, and it's a name, image, and likeness company. But Lawrence says this, and I think this is more accurate, and I think, it, or at least should be folded into the false reality that's being portrayed by these hyperbolic headlines. But Lawrence says, nobody knows what these kids are actually worth because there's not enough data. Imagine you're selling your home. Zillow never existed. And someone comes up and says, they'll give you $50,000 for your house. You have no idea whether it's good or bad, but it sounds like a lot. So you take it. But then you go and search Zillow and find out it was actually worth $500,000. The top high school prospects are quickly learning they're worth far more than that. And and while there's a sensational component to that, that these athletes are worth more than, than the market has assumed that they're worth, and we don't know whether that's true or not. Because the very first sentence puts this in perspective. Nobody knows what these kids are actually worth because there's not enough data. Leave that alone. Just, that's a standalone comment. And that's true. We don't have data. It's not coordinated. It's not 
centralized. It's not public. It's not shared. And you have confidentiality clauses. And nobody wants anybody else to know what's going on in their institutional nil marketplace. But uh, a couple of things about what uh, Lawrence said here that I think is really important. Remember, these are high school students who don't have an affiliation with a university. And when the NCAA was first launching its campaign against NIL while trying to convince the public that it actually supported NIL, one of its fundamental arguments was that athletes would have no name, image, and likeness value but for their affiliation with their university. That was a top-of-the-line talking point for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And in a 2019 slideshow that the NCAA Board of Governors, federal and state legislation working group put out to the Division I membership, one of the first slides was that a, a fundamental belief of this working group was that these athletes derived their name, image, and likeness value from their affiliation with the university. The evidence in the market now makes a mockery of that false narrative. And there, there are a whole list of narratives on name, image, and likeness that the NCAA and Power Five were putting out while they were trying to get federal protections and immunities in Congress that were simply false and I think intuitively were false, even in the absence of any nil data. And now that we have that nil data, nobody's going back and saying, wait a minute, let's look at what the NCAA and Power Five said when they were trying to prevent this market from coming into existence in the first place. And I don't think that the NCAA and Power Five can come in now and claim that these athletes' affiliations with their high schools are the primary driving force in the value of that athlete's name, image, and likeness. It's ridiculous on its face. And these athletes, regardless of what school they go to, they carry independent name, image, and likeness value. And I think the activity in the transfer portal also speaks to the absurdity of that false narrative. And that is a kid goes from one Power Five school to another, and they have name, image, and likeness deals that operate independent of the affiliation with their school. But the most important point there is that we really don't know what the hell this market looks like, yet we're forming judgments about it, both to sensationalize and overstate the value of the overall market, and then to create uh, false impressions based on those sensationalized narratives that the sky is falling and we have to put the toothpaste back into the tube. And although this article, this athletic article, doesn't talk about the the majority of nil activity, they, they focus exclusively on these outlier deals. I've got this ESPN article. It's very similar in, in substance to the athletic article, but does point something out that I think is really important. And again, this is towards the end of the article. This is like a six-page article, and it is talking about all these incredible nil deals. They have a picture of a high-profile pro quarterback standing next to a Corvette that he got as the quarterback at the University of Texas. And so you have this impression that everybody's getting filthy rich in this nil marketplace. And then a few paragraphs from the end of this five-page article, you get this. One overlooked aspect of NIL so far has been the hands-on education that it gives players connecting them to contracts in their communities. While the eye-popping deals of athletes like Young and Ewers, and that was Bryce Young and Quinn Ewers, two high-profile quarterbacks they talked about with these crazy NIL deals, they dominate headlines. The average NIL deal has been reported between $400 and $600. $400 
and $600. So when you read the headlines, when you read the overwhelming impression of these articles based on the way they are structured, the people they talk to, and the information they use, you don't come away with the impression that there is an absence of data to make any sense of this market or that people in the space believe that the overwhelming majority of these deals are worth nothing more than four to $600. That's not part of the narrative. That's not the narrative that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries want. Even though these are sensationalized articles that talk about the value of these athletes and they have their new freedoms and all that stuff, they land in a place that I believe is ultimately beneficial to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who want to get control of this market and snuff it out. And it's clear from the statements of the NCAA and the Division I Board of Directors and the movers and shakers on the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee that that's exactly what they want. They want to control this market and they benefit from portrayals of that market as out of control. All right. And then there are two, two more tidbits here. I'm going to have to deal with these in a kind of a cursory way. And one I think I'm going to do a separate episode on. But uh, adding to this chaos narrative, there were some uh, stories recently, again, that come from in-system media outlets. This is from CBS. And Dennis Dodd, he he does great work, but he you know, he's in the belly of the beast, CBS. And he's very well sourced and he makes some good observations. But when you read enough of his stuff and, and then you look at like the totality of the impression that's left, it often aligns pretty closely with the institutional stakeholder beneficiary interests and the impression that they want to leave. He's been writing about some of the regulatory confusion, this power vacuum that I talked about earlier. But Dodd has talked about it in the context of this transformation committee and then the work of this constitution committee. And he is, I think, focusing on information that's coming out of that transformation committee. And he's one of the few journalists that's really zeroed in on that. And I think that's the right place to be. That's certainly where I am based on what I saw in this constitutional makeover. But he's written about what the future of big time football is going to look like. And I think he understands that this is a football show and possible changes in the eligibility criteria to run with the big dogs and how that may be a smaller group than the current FBS and, and all that stuff. But he also talks about confusion with the CFP expansion. ESPN does that too. They did a grand synthesis article on what does all this mean? And they talked about it through the lens of this alliance between the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC. And so you've got this 15, 18-page article that's supposed to explain all of it for you. But on the backside, it, it raises more questions than it answers. And some of the purposes of that alliance just seem as silly now as they did when they first announced the alliance. But Dodd is talking about a memo that went out from the chair of the Division One Board of Directors. So uh, he puts out a memo that Dodd published through his Twitter account. And it basically says that as the Transformation Committee is thinking about the structure of Division One and any further separations within Division One and any requirements for meeting eligibility in any current or future subdivisions, that schools who want to try to move within Division One 
can't assume that if they get that request in before the transformation committee's done its work, that they're essentially grandfathered in by the standards that applied before the transformation committee announces its criteria. Long story short, we're going to decide who gets to run with the big dogs. And if you don't meet the criteria, tough luck. But what it suggests, of course, is that what's really going on behind the scenes here, and this is as close as we get to, to knowing what the hell's going on in the voluntary governance of college sports. And this wasn't on the NCAA website. I'm guessing Dodd got it through a source. But it's important because I think it, it speaks to what's actually going on behind the scenes. And it is all about the Power 5 football interest, the big-time football interest, protecting their market share, their money, and excluding to the extent that they can any meaningful competition. That's been their goal all along. It's why I did those episodes on these hearings in the late 90s and early 2000s in this battle between the haves and have-nots in college football. You have that same issue expressing itself now, and I think this is some evidence of that. But it, it adds to this sense of confusion and, and who the hell is really in charge. Where's Mark Emmert? We haven't heard a word from Mark Emmert. Jack DeJoya, who's technically still the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors. Now, that body's supposed to be fundamentally made over and go from, what, 21 members to nine members. And there's no reason why that can't happen now. That's That was part of the constitutional makeover, and that constitution is in place now. And there's no reason that we don't have a new Board of Governors, but we don't. Why haven't we heard from DeJoya? What does he think? What does Emmert think? All of this now is running through the Power 5 football interests and the SEC and Greg Sankey. And that's where things sit right now. And while the rest of America is occupied the next three weeks and transfixed by March Madness, I'm going to be paying very close attention to what's happening outside of this March Madness tournament. And then the last thing that I want to talk about, and I'm just going to mention this briefly, and then I'm going to do a, a separate episode on it because I think it's so important because it go, just goes to so many of the longstanding hypocrisies in college sports. And that is some very recent and very interesting activity on sports betting in college sports. And that has an interesting history that invokes NCAA false values and then litigation and then attempts to try to exploit what is an obviously lucrative component of the overall sports business model, professional and college and really all sports. And, and that's sports betting. And it's become a huge industry and it has become more and more mainstream and despite all the NCAA's propaganda against betting on college sports and bringing that into the business model, they have behind the scenes very subtly permitted encroachments on those values that I think point to uh, the fact that we're going to have sports betting affiliations throughout college sports. There's one that was just announced through the Mid-American Conference, the MAC Conference, uh, that I'm going to talk about when I talk about sports betting and how some of the language has changed and some of the thinking on sports betting and how it can be used to promote the interests of constituency groups in the NCAA. In that Kaplan gender report, there was a, a companion report on, on market conditions. And in the companion report that was done by this dresser firm, they have a section on sports betting and say, notwithstanding the NCAA's longstanding opposition to using uh, sports betting as a revenue source in, in uh, the broader college sports marketplace, they believe that can be a, a way to generate revenue that can be earmarked for women's sports. And they just take it on 
come directly and nobody's talking about that. So I'm going to go through a discussion of the sports betting issue because it really is fascinating and, and touches on so many of the false values and hypocrisies in big time college sports. And to close this episode out, I just want to bring all this back home to that central theme that I talked about at the beginning of the episode. And that is that almost everything we know about the big time college sports industry and marketplace and value system runs through interests that have a direct financial stake in the business. And when push comes to shove, the narrative makers in big time college sports, and they are very powerful, they routinely land in the same place. And that is siding much more closely with the institutional interests than with the athlete's interests. So with that, I'm just going to close this thing out, and I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.